corporate America, in my experience, has always reverted to the least controversial measures that seem to promote equality. People need to be treated equitably, giving them what they need to succeed, recognizing that each person has different needs and different deficiencies in terms of their ability to move forward. So as soon as we normalize and equalize, what you're saying is, well, clearly this African-American person who came from poverty had the same opportunity, experience, vision, exposure as this person coming from five generations of wealthy college graduates. Of course, they're the same. Well, guess what? They're not. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. I'm Andrew Tarvin, humor engineer. And I'm Roman Segel, recovering marketer. Andrew and I both got our start at PNG, the Procter and Gamble company, where we both had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at PNG. In this series, through conversations with fellow PNG alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know but want to know more about, how they got their start how they make it work, and what keeps them going. It's kind of like bringing a microphone to a cup of coffee, or in my case, hot chocolate. On today's show, we're speaking with Sharon Hall, Walmart's VP of Global Executive Recruiting. It was a great conversation about challenging career assumptions and learning lessons along the way. But first, we want to share an amazing giving opportunity to support International Women's Day with the PNG Alumni Foundation. As you may know, the PNG Alumni Foundation creates economic empowerment opportunities around the world, providing marginalized communities sustainable paths to prosperity. As a registered nonprofit with hundreds of volunteers around the world, the PNG Alumni Foundation provides grants each year to amazing organizations, powered by contributions in PNG people like you and me. The PNG Alumni Foundation is creating real, impactful economic empowerment opportunities for women in local communities across rural Africa and Asia and urban Mumbai in Cincinnati and so many other amazing and deserving programs around the world. And to support this International Women's Day, the PNG Fund is matching up to $50,000 for all new donations to the PNG Alumni Foundation. Join the foundation and the Women's Leadership Forum to break the bias and support women's work around the globe. Thanks to the generosity of the PNG Fund, all donations of any size will be matched dollar for dollar. No donation is too small or too big. It's never too late to start giving back. Your donation is tax deductible and through the power of PNG people will uplift women around the world. Visit pgalums.com slash donate to help this great cause. But now back to our conversation with Sharon Hall, Walmart's VP of Recruiting. It was a great conversation about challenging career assumptions and learning lessons along the way. Here's a quick bio. Sharon Hall is Walmart's Vice President of Recruiting, where she's building a dynamic organization for a changing culture. Sharon previously spent 23 years as a partner at Spencer Stewart, a leader in executive search, board services, and leadership consulting, where she actually founded the firm's diversity practice and later became the first Black woman to serve on the board, later managing the firm's Atlanta office. Prior to that, Sharon spent a decade at Avon in a number of roles, ranging from strategic planning for Asia Pacific all the way up to general manager for personal care. She spent some years as a consultant at Booz Allen Hamilton. And of course, she got her start at P&G and brand marketing in the paper division. She graduated magna cum laude from Morris Brown College and got her MBA from the University of Southern California. Sharon's been recognized in Fortune Magazine, Dollars and Cents Magazine, Business to Business, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and Black Enterprise. And what I loved about this conversation was Sharon got really real, not just on the early stages of her career and the objectives and the plans that she had from a little girl all the way up into those first few jobs, but the choices that she had to make for her family and her life along the way. Later on, we had a conversation about being a Black woman, being a Black executive, and having to translate some of the things, not just for non-minority executives, but also minority executives that she works with. It was a ranging conversation. We had a lot of fun. So we think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with Sharon Hall. Sharon, welcome to the pod. It's really great to have you here. Thank you, Raman. I'm excited to be here. So Sharon, a lot of folks already know your professional story. As Walmart's VP of Global Executive Recruiting, you're helping the company take talent to the next level. But Prior to that, you spent 20 plus years as a partner at Spencer Stewart, who's a leader in executive search, board services, and leadership consulting, where you founded the firm's diversity practice, and you were the first Black woman to serve on the company's board, and you later actually managed the firm's Atlanta office. 
Prior to that, you spent a decade at Avon, raging in roles of strategic planning for Asia, all the way up to general manager of the personal care division, and a couple of years as a consultant for Booz Allen Hamilton. And of course, you got your start at P&G and brand marketing in the paper division. Uh, you graduated magna cum laude from Morris Brown College, and you got your MBA from the University of Southern California with a degree in business management. You've been recognized in Fortune Magazine, Dollars and Cents Magazine, Business to Business, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and Black Enterprise. And... You're a mom. <laughs> I am. So there's so much in there that I would love to talk about. But I guess the first question, Sharon, is who are you before the career journey began? Can you tell us a story from, from your youth? I can tell you an environment from my youth. What I remember most is structure, discipline, and development. I would say to you that my parents are African-American and come from a generation where indeed they didn't really have access to college. Both mom and dad spent a couple of years and then had children and marriage at an early age. So the thing that I really appreciated about my youth is that while my parents did not have a lot of experience and exposure and didn't have the vision or wisdom to sort of guide us through what school you should go to or what career. They were very, very aware about development and exposure and discipline. So let me get into that a little bit. Discipline and structure, we had family meetings every single Sunday, mandatory attendance, and it was fun and it was nice. How big was your family? How many people? We thought, well, well, four coming up. There were my sister and I are 10 months apart. Okay. So there were two parents and two girls. And then my brother came along 15 years later. Okay. So okay. I grew up with one sister. And by the time my brother was three, I was leaving for college. So a family meeting of four people every Sunday. That's exactly up. right. Okay. During which we talk about family business, yada yada. But what was also happening is we as children were developing the ability to present. <laughs> and debate. Because even though dad was a disciplinarian, if you could present your case and debate it well, you could change the rules of the household. That was that was educational. Right <laughs> that there. is clutch. So now, I, I got to know, what, what was one of the things you were able to change? What was one of the rules you got to change? Oh, curfew, curfew. Oh, yeah. Here's a story. <laughs> even at my age, all these many decades later, when my kids have finished college, right? I still uh, talk to my father, resenting the fact he would not let me go to prom my freshman year. He laid out in seventh grade, here's how it's going to roll, girls. No dating freshman year. Sophomore year, we meet the young man three, three visits over here. Junior year, we have to meet him before the date. And senior year, you have your own judgment. And he stuck to that. Problem is, I get to freshman year in school, you get invited to the dance. And he's telling me I can't go. Now it's time for debate. Here's me. This is a school function at the school in which I attend. I am eligible to attend and have been invited. I mean, what is the deal? And, and he did not change. And, and that is still a, a bone of contention because we did. There was a voting system. Wait, so was listen, all, were, were all votes equal or did mom and dad have a veto? No, 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 no. Oh, no. <laughs> two oh, no. Cla a two-class voting structure. <laughs> my mother, my sister, and I each had one vote and dad had three. <laughs> so we could get a three-to-three -three tie and then debate and we could change his mind sometimes. And that was a real accomplishment and you felt it. But by the time we left his home, mm -hmm. we could organize thought, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, present a case, mm -hmm back it up with data, you know? So that's what kind of discipline and structure. The other thing my parents tried to do was expose us to everything they had access to, mm -hmm. whatever it was. If it was ballet lessons, music lessons, horseback riding lessons, anything they had access to, they would share and show so that we could just have exposure to whatever. And my father wound up taking my sister and I around to various kinds of people while we were in high school. And that is what helped me get the vision. I met a brand manager in Chicago at whatever company was there. And I said, that's the career for me. 
Mm. And then I started doing research on what were the right companies and came across Procter & Gamble. So when I went off to college, day one, I knew exactly what job I wanted coming out. Before that moment, as uh, I'm assuming a teenager where you met that brand manager, as a little kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? As a little kid, I really wanted to change things. I had mm. this altruistic posture that I wanted to change the world, but I thought that I did not want to do that from the outside looking in. Mm. Why not join the structure and get things right from the beginning? So Procter was a natural fit because it was a company that wanted and was committed to get things right for the consumer from mm -hmm. the beginning. So it was an easy fit. I liked also ha having my hands on something that you could see on shelf. And there's a real product that was a function of your efforts and, and your good hard work. So it was very exciting for me. That, that I want to probe on that a little bit though. So that outsider versus insider change agent, is that rooted? I mean, you're, you came up in an era that's very different from the era I grew up in. And there was a lot of outsider pressure for things to change on the inside back then is that's exactly right is that why because you were like that's an activist lifestyle and that's a harder path for a little girl coming up and that's the point i grew up on the south side of chicago in mm -hmm. the 60s mm -hmm. jesse jackson right He's right mm -hmm. there and every every weekend you're out picketing at some place that was encouraged to do better mm -hmm. and my thing is why are we outside picketing let's get on inside change the rules, you know, become have, a those debates. have those debates around the table. Like you did. There you kid. go. There you go. So that is exactly uh, how I felt and why I joined. So if we, if we fast forward to who you are today and that little girl chain deciding that she wanted to be on the inside, how are you the same or how are you different from that little kid making those kind of decisions to get on the inside? I still have very high hopes. And I have seen hopes turn into reality across my career. It's been very exciting. And I have maintained a certain level of courage from the beginning of my career that serves me better the more experienced I become. Mm -hmm. So I, I had a certain, I had to have courage to get into Proctor. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that was the first thing that said to me, you don't have to follow the exact rules all the time to get the right result. And from then on, from the time I got into Proctor, I knew you really had to understand the rules and you had to work within them, mm -hmm. but you could drive change from within that kind of structure. And the rules at Proctor were so clearly defined. I found it an easy roadmap within which to navigate and move because the rules were never gonna change. Mm -hmm. So you always had surety that if you punch this button, this was going to happen over here. Mm -hmm. And that gave you a lot of freedom in terms of what you could change internally. And I carried that throughout my career and still doing it. Yeah, th there's something I've really come to appreciate as I've gotten older is constraints are really good. It's when you have complete freedom, we get lost. We don't know what to do. Constraints is kind of drive creativity sometimes. Indeed. So let's talk about Procter & Gamble. So many people, the, the reputation was, oh, I really, I didn't want to stay at Procter. It was too rigid. Mm -hmm. And I found beauty in that rigid posture. Because mm -hmm. again, if the rules don't change, there is an, a, a new level of freedom in terms of how we move around them. If there are no rules or there's complete chaos, everything is at risk. And there is no no result tied to any action. It's just, let's all have a party and see who wins at whatever. So can you share an example from the early parts of your career, be it at Procter or as a consultant, that kind of pre-MBA period of your life where you kind of were able to act creatively within the rules to kind of get a different result? Well, yeah. I mean, so I became an intrapreneur, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, starting at Procter & Gamble. I worked on a test brand mm -hmm. and the test brand was a brand called Certain. Mm -hmm. Certain. It was in the paper division. It was a, a toilet paper embedded with lotion. This was a fascinating first brand to work on straight out of college because the target market, well, the whole market was completely polarized. They either loved it, 
and would call from around the world, where can I buy it by the case? Or were completely offended. How dare you make such products? So we had to defy some of the rules. In that day, <laughs> in TV advertising, you could not show a toilet at all. <laughs> you, you couldn't show a bathroom and you couldn't show a roll on the toilet roll. You couldn't show a roll of paper right, right, on right. the toilet roll. So you had to be able to demonstrate we were changing the rules upon which toilet paper was sold. It's not about softness. Hello, Charmin down the hall. Okay. It's about hygiene. And one can only clean a surface if there's moisture on the cleaning element. Mm -hmm. How do you communicate this to people who've never had this experience mm -hmm. and have never bought toilet paper based on this? So it was fun and it was breaking a rule to have a demonstration to show how the toilet paper would clean you better right after the act. But we did it. And that you, was you're doing it with like the three hands tied behind your back. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But you just had to find ways around. And we did. And, and it worked. There's a lot more to the story about sure. that brand and how it developed and what have you. Now, that exact brand is Charmin Gentle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Same, same brand. Mm. That's so, when it became successful. So the early part of your career, you you left Procter after a couple of years, you went into consulting and you and I've had a chat before where you talk about how it was part of the plan, right? It was kind of getting these experiences along the way, but what was that decision like to, to leave Procter? Or more importantly, what was that decision like to go into consulting, which are two yeah. kind of very oh. different like education paths? They really are. My career plan out of college was to work and retire from Procter & Gamble. Hmm. That was my whole career plan. <laughs> I think I have a memo for to tell you of that. <laughs> it's not, not what happened. So I wasn't a, a natural career planner at that point. But remember, I knew the value of knowing the job I wanted my first day of college. That's the only way I was able to get it when I graduated. So I learned the benefit of advanced planning. The only reason I got into Proctor is because I knew day one in college, that is the job I wanted. If I didn't have that vision, I couldn't have planned my way through college to actually get into Proctor. So I had reached my total career plan, which was to work at Proctor and retire from Proctor. That was it. However, once I got there, I found some of the brightest Caucasian males were leaving actively, going to these places called McKinsey, Booz Allen, Bain, BCG. I had never heard of any of these companies at all. What are they? Management consultants. Never heard of management consulting. What's that? Mm. So I am curious, and I did look it up and learned that, indeed, you could not only accelerate the development of your analytical skills, you could also completely accelerate the compensation levels to which you could aspire and a lot quicker than you could in corporate. Mm -hmm. So that just got me to thinking there must be something in it. There's clearly some advantage. Mm -hmm. It can accelerate your career and it made sense and not everybody was able to do it. So I set my sights on that and it was only based on that, that I got an MBA. You had to have an MBA to join. Mm -hmm. And then I made another plan to get in because mm -hmm. I wasn't at the right schools they recruited from. Mm -hmm. And that allowed me to get into management consulting. I used Procter & Gamble's three-reason rule throughout <laughs> my career. And my reasons were that I really wanted, I knew I was committed to a career in marketing. But is it consumer marketing, industrial marketing, professional marketing? There's all different kinds of marketing. So I thought I would go into consulting and get exposure to other kinds of marketing to confirm my commitment to consumer. I knew that I would sharpen my analytical skills because my college education didn't. So I knew I could sharpen my analytical skills there. And I knew I could accelerate my earning capability, even if not at the company, after the company. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I went in for those three reasons and it was critically important. If you wanna hear a life lesson, here's a life lesson. I had done all my homework, so I knew what I was doing and I knew we're talking decades ago, the whole management consulting industry was rather elite. 
So it was elitist and it was prejudiced and it was sexist. There weren't many women, there weren't many people of color and everybody came from sort of Harvard and Stanford, MIT. So I knew it was not likely to be a culture in which I would spend a lot of time. So I researched how long do I need to check the box hard? All you needed was two years. So I went in year one, I had secured an internship and then got hired in and sort of knew what to expect. They positioned me as quote unquote, a high risk hire. Well, I guess for them, it was risky. There were no other black women on the professional staff globally. Right. And so I was paid substantially less than the class of people who came in with me from Harvard, et cetera. Fine. I'll earn it. Not a problem. After year one, the class of people that came in with me from Harvard, et cetera, were not only out earning me by a factor of three times, they were now 12 months in getting adjustments in compensation. So not just a raise, but like a whole different compensation structure. New curves, right? And one of the partners called me in and said, you've done a good job and here's a $3,000 increase. I mean, it's hard to live in Manhattan off of what I was earning. I was devastated because you get appraised after every project and all of my appraisals were good. And by the end of a year, the people appraising me were recommending promotion. But again, this is the kind of environment it was. I should not have been surprised, but I was devastated. And I go home that weekend just devastated. And what am I doing? What was I thinking? Why am I here? The light bulb went off. I said, wait a minute. I know why I'm here. I wrote this down. I had three reasons for coming here. And I whipped out my sheet of paper. And the reasons were to develop my analytical skills. That was happening. To get broader exposure to marketing. That was happening and to accelerate my earning capability, which wasn't happening at the company, but would surely happen when I left. And it did. And instantly, instantly in that moment, I was fine. So wait a minute. Every reason I came is being fulfilled. And that is a critical life lesson I've kept with me forever. Know why you are where you are. I knew why I was there. I reminded myself why I was there. I was immediately elated because I was getting every single thing I came for. And then I stuck to my plan. I wanted to stay two years. I started taking calls in year two and I quit on the second anniversary. Something you and I have also talked about, and this is, it's funny, after you told me this anecdote, I actually texted a black friend to ask if this was true. We're about a generation apart. And it is- You're kind, we're only one generation apart. Thank you. But people of color, specifically Black Americans, maybe it could be applied to other, other minority underrepresented groups. And it's something you've had to, as an executive recruiter, train organizations to see, is that there is this moving, there's more moving around at companies every two to four or five years, because sometimes that's the only way to get to the next level versus a lot of your majority counterparts that can kind of stay and kind of ride out the career, the compensation curve, et cetera, to, to move levels up. Can, can you unpack why? It's a very uncomfortable topic. That's why actually why I want to bring it up for some people to hear. But you work in recruiting. You help companies look at stacks and stacks of resumes and look at career histories on LinkedIn. Can, can you unpack those differences and why we need to account for those differences when we do look at resumes? Well, sure. I mean, the data is clear in terms of of the experience base if you have lived it. So it's very easy for me to help clients in that case understand what they're actually seeing in the resume. Mm -hmm. Imagine entire generations of people of color weren't at various parties for a long time. Let's, Let's do the math. I was the first generation in my entire family to graduate college. Right. I am going into these jobs with people who are from six generations of college educated people with all the vision, wealth, direction, and contacts that come with it. 
Mm-hmm. And we sort of show up like, hey, what's going on? How does New this to work? the party. New to the party. Happy to learn. So happy to be here. Thank you. But not necessarily learning the game at the same time and certainly not through generational experience. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. You get there a little late. You have a little less experience. You can't get ahead as quickly and you can slip through the cracks. My career did not suffer that because I was completely planful. Mm-hmm. And if why you are where you are, exactly when to leave. I never wasted a day. Mm-hmm. And that was just having the courage to manage that. However, I have counseled many people of color who are in there doing as requested. Just put your nose to the grindstone and you're going to get ahead, which mm-hmm. isn't true at all. That's just opening bid. You have to have your nose to the grindstone and typically outperform your peers to be recognized at all. And you still may not access the kinds of promotions that your colleagues would access. Mm -hmm. One has to be very cognizant of that and make the move. We have to be adept at beginning and managing the awkward conversation. Hey, Mm -hmm. boss, I've noticed this. I noticed that. We have to help our superiors be specific in their feedback. Mm-hmm. We tend to get softer feedback that can only be addressed in the judgment of your boss. Mm-hmm. Well, your leadership skills aren't quite developed. And what does that mean? Well, you know, I can't quite put my finger on it, but I'll let you when I see it. Mm-hmm. As opposed to feedback that would say you have to be better at analytical capability. Okay, mm-hmm. that's real clear. Take mm-hmm. a class, get some new projects, develop it. Got it. So you don't always get that tangible, actionable feedback. So we sometimes, people who are driven in their careers will say, wait a minute, I'm getting soft feedback that can't be addressed unless it's in somebody's judgment. I see my peers with the same or less experience moving ahead of me. Conscious or unconscious bias comes into those judgmental things, right? Exactly. And this environment is not going to be one in which I proceed. So Mm -hmm. I need to move. If I'm a manager looking to be a director, I need to accept a job at a different company. Mm -hmm. And if I have the same experience there performing, and maybe I'll become a senior director, but just can't seem to hit that VP level, I have to move again. My counterpart might have stayed at the same company and been promoted every 18 months. Right. So... When we look at resumes, it is important to see the experience and the contributions and the timeliness of the moves, because you can see in a resume, well, if they've done all that as a director, they should have been a VP two years ago. Of course, they had to leave. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of, and this is kind of a touchy subject, like a lot of resume, you kind of hear it invoke, oh, we should take the name off. We shouldn't know if they are a person of color or white or male, female, but it's knowing the person's experience in this country helps you understand why were they jumping every two years? It could have been that. That's exactly right. Knowing that cultural context. Corporate America, in my experience, has always reverted to the least controversial measures that seem to promote equality. That's what makes corporate America feel good. We're treating people equally. Isn't that a good thing? No, it isn't. People need to be treated equitably so that each person has a different makeup, a different ability to contribute and different development needs. Mm -hmm. Addressing those individually is treating people equitably and giving them what they need to succeed, recognizing that each person has different needs and different deficiencies in terms of their ability to move forward. Yeah. So as soon as we normalize and equalize, what you're saying is, well, clearly this African-American person who came from poverty had the same opportunity, experience, vision, exposure as this person coming from five generations of wealthy college graduates. Of course, they're the same. Well, guess what? They're not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
you, it's, it's interesting how you got into recruiting. I, and it's, it's one of those things. Wow. It's so obvious now, like your talent and your skill and kind of your empathy and not just your empathy and understanding, but your ability to kind of explain it to other people, as you've explained in this conversation and past conversations we've had, but it wasn't a straight path for you to get to recruiting. Like you wore lots of international hats. You continue to pursue the consumer marketing path, I guess, less about kind of the path itself, but on that path, what were the things that kind of led you to believe that recruiting was going to be the path, not that marketing vision that you had? Nothing. I never did. (laughs) I had a plan, but it wasn't recruiting. So here's the thing that none of us understand, but if you go into recruiting, you'll find out. Every single person, every single person in any executive search firm will say to you, I had never plan to be a recruiter. (laughs) Nobody does. You know, you can't major in executive recruiting. You you aren't taught recruiting. Recruiting is never held out as this magical career of a specialty ever. So what happens is the search firms know what they're doing. They're recruiters. They find people whose careers set them up to be good strategists and counselors and who understand the landscape And they tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, why don't you come over here and do recruiting? And all of us say, I don't think so. Why would I've got a real job? Why would I go do recruiting? I mean, I'm running a business. I have a P&L. I'm making a difference. And you're recruiting? And then typically they'll kind of put their arm around your shoulder and say, well, let us help you understand how this works. Mm-hmm. And when you start to hear how it works, you say, wait a minute, I might, I might do this for a little while. This sounds like there's some real. Wait, wait, hang on, back, back up there, Sharon. How does it work? Come on, what's the secret thing <laughs> that makes you say, oh, wait a minute. Well, in executive recruiting, how it works, there are some distinct advantages. One, the fun in the career. Mm-hmm. Well, one, the value you're adding, you yeah. feel tangibly as you're making a difference because you're placing critical executives in critical roles to have major impact in these companies. So that just feels good that you're allowed to have that kind of impact. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating to see corporate America from the backside and how it works and how they look at executives and how they look at applicants and all of that. So that's fascinating. But then there are some personal things that are wonderful. The freedom. There is no 23 years at Spencer Stewart. I was obligated to attend one meeting if it was convenient each month, staff meeting. Hmm. If you're in during staff meeting, attend. It's an hour. Mm-hmm. Other than that, 100% of your time is yours. That is a very exciting thing for anybody who's coming from corporate America with back-to-back Zoom meetings all day, every day, mm-hmm. and people counting your hours and expecting to see you in the office. In executive search, you can if you have a laptop and a phone, you're in the office. Mm-hmm. Nobody cares how you spend your time. The only thing that matters is the result that you bring to the firm and the clients, which is great. And these are back in days when everybody was kind of at least eight to eight in the office. We want to see you mm-hmm. have the meetings. So it was very freeing in terms of you, you pick the clients you want to work with. You're selecting the candidates you're putting forward. You, you select the industry in which you want to work. And it was very entrepreneurial. If we don't have a practice in a place where you think we can have a going concern, build one. Great. Mm-hmm. So the independence, the freedom, the creativity with which you can work and accommodate your family. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a problem if you had to be at the kids' kindergarten play at 3 p.m. on a Wednesday afternoon. Right. It's your time and you schedule it. So those were some of the great aspects. And the other thing is these firms, some firms, tend to work on an all-cash compensation basis. That's not the way it is now. But if you have all of your compensation in cash in real time, you can manage a different lifestyle. You can Mm -hmm. eliminate debt and do these kinds of things, which also makes a difference. So there were lots of reasons to be in search. You could really do good, add value, earn a decent living, and have uh, a free form schedule. It was fun. 
my plan was never to stay. Never, 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 ever. Never I, is, I, right? You couldn't. Well, the, here's the big problem. You have to be a salesperson. Mm-hmm. I am not a salesperson. I learned this at sales training at Procter & Gamble. So I said, no, I'm a marketer. I can, I can create demand for my service, but I am not a salesperson. So I knew it wouldn't be for me. However, I was recently divorced, coming out of a private equity portfolio company. I wanted, I had to be still now. I had two young kids. And now if I'm going to be a single mother, I can't keep moving residences. So I wanted to raise my kids in Atlanta and the market was hot. I answered the phone, waiting for an opportunity in Atlanta, and none came. Spencer Stewart had called me for several kind of mid-cap CEOs. A couple hundred million dollar companies need the CEO, and it was great. It sounded wonderful. And my thing is, nope, nope, nope. Why won't you talk to us? Well, I want to be in Atlanta, and none of the opportunities you've said are in Atlanta. We need a search consultant in Atlanta. Like, what does that mean? I have no interest in that. But I loved Every single person I met, I knew this would be a high quality culture, a high quality culture. People were committed to high quality and they were completely different from each other, but Mm -hmm. they were all really happy. Mm -hmm. So just like Proctor, I said, something's happening over there. That's pretty good. I'm going to go check it out. But the real plan was this. They'll move me to Atlanta. Mm -hmm. There'll be great jobs crossing my desk all day. I'll take one and I'm out. That sure. was the plan, yeah. right? And I got there and started figuring out how much fun it was and how much freedom there was and how you could dictate your own career path. Right. And I thought, well, I can hang out here for a minute or two. And <laughs> I started having fun. Like, and you could, you could start a practice if you want. You can go the management track and run an office if you want. You could work in consumer. You could work in HR. You can, there, there was a lot of freedom right. in your lifestyle and your work. And uh, you look up and 23 years later, what happened? So- you worked with a lot of clients and you talked with a lot of candidates over those 23 years. You mentioned earlier going into CPG, brand management, management consulting, that there weren't a lot of black women in the field. What was similar or different from a demographics over those 23 years? But more importantly, because I I think I know what the answer is, but more importantly, what were the things you could bring to the table that helped what because I would assume a lot of your clients kind of fit the majority mold and you helped them understand based on one of the lessons we talked about earlier. Like, what were the kind of blind spots that you helped them fill out and f- understand better mm. as part of the impact you were making? Well, there were blind spots both ways. There really, were, yes. Clients would say, We really need a diverse candidate in this role. But they couldn't understand that the diverse profiles they were seeing were indeed qualified and likely to be good fits. I could help them see past the paper to say, I know what you think you're seeing on this paper. Let me give you a different scenario about this resume and how it has occurred over time. And then they, oh, oh, that's interesting. The other thing is in resumes, if we got to the parties late, we climb the ladders late. Right. So for two people of the same age with these two different backgrounds, when the client says we have to have somebody who's run a $2 billion business with at least 200,000 people, the mainstream candidate will have done that. Mm-hmm. And the candidate from the underrepresented population may have run a billion dollar operation with 20,000 people. Mm -hmm. So to a candidate, well, they're not qualified. I'm sorry, let's look at this differently. Mm. So why does it have to be a $2 billion business and 200,000 people? Well, we need them to be able to manage complexity. We need them to be able to manage five leaders and we need them to be able to, I don't know, have the, have wide shoulders to manage all these projects. Mm -hmm. So client, why don't we make those the criteria managing complexity Mm -hmm. and leadership instead of 
the two billion the set number two hundred thousand. Because right. now, if you look at this resume, the complexity they managed in that country, in that in that company, in that industry at that time, far exceeds this two billion dollar player over here. And they've managed a team of fourteen direct reports, not five. Mm-hmm. So everything you're looking for, this resume with lesser numbers, fewer mm-hmm. numbers, is indeed qualified. So that's one blind spot. The other blind spot <laughs> was in the community of candidates from underrepresented populations. Say more. Hi, Director of Marketing. I'm Sharon Hall, recruiter. I want you to look at this VP job over here at so-and-so company. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, no, no. I've been here eight years and I'm a director and they're telling me that I'll probably be promoted in the next two years. Right. Well, you might be promoted in the next two years, director, but you do understand that all of your peers are VPs now and you're waiting to be promoted. Why would you do that? Right. Do you understand what this job in this company can do to your resume and what you can do after this job in this company? Let's talk about that. Now, if I can help dimensionalize for the candidate the benefit of making this move to your overall career, right? now all of a sudden they're taking their nose off the grindstone going, wait a minute, that's a good point. Yes, I'm happy to talk to them. Mm-hmm. And now there's a match. Right. You have the client who sees the person for more than they saw on the paper, and you have the candidate from the underrepresented population seeing the growth and the benefit of actually making a move, which might take them out of their comfort zone. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is so much of your perspective in the recruiting space is obviously born out of just doing great work over many years, but I almost like feel and sound like there's like personal experiences from those early stories that like you draw into this. And it's almost like, oh, that was my hypothesis with my N of one, but then I saw N of 20 as I met with tons of candidates and tons of companies, you talked about seeing the company from the inside, those things you were feeling on the inside, once you kind of got the peak beneath the covers, you saw the world was kind of working that way. Yeah, it was kind of interesting. It's not like my career was all that, you know, brilliant or magical, (laughs) but what I could relate to was, I can tangibly relate to the benefit of specifically planning why I would make a move what I need from that move and where I go with that afterwards. And that was a habit for the 20 some years I had spent in corporate America. And I could translate that to candidates who otherwise were not career planners. And when they had a sense of a plan, they could really take control of their careers. And now we have a relationship and I can just help people over the years. So it was very fulfilling. And now a word from our sponsor. We want to share an amazing giving opportunity to support International Women's Day with the PNG Alumni Foundation. As you may know, the PNG Alumni Foundation creates economic empowerment opportunities around the world, providing marginalized communities sustainable paths to prosperity. As a registered nonprofit with hundreds of volunteers around the world, the PNG Alumni Foundation provides grants each year to amazing organizations powered by contributions of PNG people like you and me. The PNG Alumni Foundation is creating real, impactful economic empowerment opportunities for women in local communities across rural Africa and Asia and urban Mumbai and Cincinnati and so many other amazing and deserving programs around the world. And to support this International Women's Day, the PNG Fund is matching up to $50,000 for all new donations to the PNG Alumni Foundation. Join the foundation and the Women's Leadership Forum to break the bias and support women's work around the globe. Thanks to the generosity of the PNG Fund, all donations of any size will be matched dollar for dollar. No donation is too small or too big. It's never too late to start giving back. Your donation is tax deductible and through the power of PNG people will uplift women around the world. Visit pgalums.com donate to help this great cause. And now back to our show. As a black woman in the part of your career, the accelerant part of your career, right? The the years at Avon going around the world, the, the years at Spencer Stewart running offices, running practices, were there ever moments where you felt like you didn't fit in or you had to try to do something you weren't comfortable with? Or honestly, because you were a black woman, things didn't move the way you saw them. Like what were those direct experiences and and the high point of your career, because it- yeah, it wasn't an experience. It was a way of life. It was every mm. day of life. I mean, mm. you you can only bring that part of yourself to work that fits into the culture you're in. Right. That was the other thing. Just to to go back to the prior Please. point, 
is that many companies would be concerned about the underrepresented population candidate's ability to assimilate into our culture. Right. And here's what they didn't understand. And as soon as you say it, they get it. People from underrepresented cultures are masters of assimilation. Code switching. Yeah, it's their superpower. We have to assimilate everywhere we go. Yeah. From grade school, when I was the only black kid in the school, you had to assimilate. So the one thing we know how to do is get in there and assimilate. So (laughs) (laughs) in doing so, there are some parts of your culture that you have to leave home. I tended to go to cultures where I could bring most of myself to work. So that was an important consideration. That's really important. The, the idea of it is, I have a friend, Matt, who's been on this podcast. He's a black executive at a major corporation. And it's this kind of superpower that we consciously or unconsciously have had to have to fit into majority culture. And until you realize it's a superpower, it, but it's, it's a really interesting one that you don't know until you've had to use it a bajillion times, consciously or subconsciously. And the people who are at senior levels that we're talking to in executive search and are hired in officer roles, right. they've, had to, they've done it more than other people. So you, typically you can go ahead and check that box of can they assimilate? It's like, yeah, or they wouldn't be where they are right now. Specifically in the bigger part of your career, right? Like the, the high-flying expatriate executive practice leader, what were those moments of racism and prejudice and discrimination that you felt in your experience, either in others or directly at yourself? Because I think some of our listeners are kind of at that point in their career, right? Yes, Where they yes. are feeling and seeing this. And it's not just what was the moment, but how did you handle the moment? You know, it's fascinating. It, it is, you won't expect this comment, but I came up in a time when there were so few of us. Mm. Let me say this a different way. When you're the only one, racism is not systemic. I mean, wow. racism is not even a thing. You're just like a raisin in the oatmeal. Mm. It's okay. There's raisin in the oatmeal, but it's not a thing. Nobody has to work to avoid you or be awkward around you or worried about what you're doing in the company or any, anything that's negative because you're just one. So I didn't necessarily have the oppression, if you will, of people trying to keep me down. I mm. came up in decent economies when there were good jobs. And if you're the only one there, racism is not systemic. That said, there were experiences that consistently reminded me Mm. that I was the only one. So here are a couple of those. Never forget this one. I am at Avon, very global company, before companies were so global that we were in 101 countries in, in, in the early 80s. I can remember a couple of events that would remind me I was the only one, even though they weren't expressly racist or meant to offend in any way. So here's one where Avon had this very special dinner for some of the higher ups. And I was only a director, but the work I did kept me kind of in that community. Mm. And would it be great to go have this lovely dinner at Ellis Island? And that's where all the immigrants had come through and signed up and you could go and look up your family's history. This was, of course, before they had all the DNA online and stuff, right? right? And wouldn't this be exciting for everybody? Wouldn't it, Ron? Oh, no. Oh, no. Except me. That was a thing. So everybody went in and, oh, they're in the books and finding their people. And I'm like, well, is there a book for those of us who came in under the boat as numbers? Right. No, there's no book for that. So this was when smoking was okay. I'll just go have a cigarette. Well, you guys go look up your heritage and there I was an outsider. So there were events like that. There were Spencer Stewart was a very elegant environment and still is. And so many events are held at very elite environments like country clubs. And many of my colleagues were very good depending on the country club we went to. I had this one boss who was great. He was wonderful. He would always arrive early and meet me at the door. 
he was mortified that at some point I would arrive alone and they would say, great, kitchen's this way. And it did happen a couple of times when I arrived at a country club alone and was welcomed to the kitchen because they knew I was there to work and serve, wow. not, not arrive as a guest. So again, these were not events or circumstances that were planned to be racist. It just wasn't an environment or a time that accommodated everybody in the same way. That's a sign of the times for the raisin and the oatmeal. Yeah. Now that wouldn't really happen. I mean, everybody knows to ask and check and make sure. And, and, and there are more of us. Let's talk about this a little bit more because your point is well taken. There are still systems now that there are not a majority, but a critical mass of people Mm. from underrepresented populations. And indeed, racism and prejudice can be systemic. And in some cases it is. But I think these days that is being called out a lot more and quantified and specified a lot more. So I think the younger generation, God bless them, are ushering in an era where these things are not happening behind the scenes. They are in front of you know cameras and data and everything else, and they are willing to lean in and drive change, and I, it's, it's happening. So another shift that you've made in your career is you've gone back to the inside. <laughs> you now work at a, another multinational, but now you're at that multinational not wearing the marketing hat. You're wearing the executive recruiting hat. You're on the other side of the table. Yes. What has been the biggest change that you've seen going from one side of the table to the next, or more importantly, seeing how multinationals have changed their approach of recruiting when it comes to DEI versus what you might've seen as an operator, right? Years well, prior. you just said it. They haven't changed their approach. And really? That's why, I, that's why I came back to corporate. This is not, oh, gee, how is it going from professional services to corporate? This is coming back home. I was raised in corporate. Yeah, of course. For 20 years before I did recruiting. Here's the deal. In the post-George Floyd environment, there is a more grounded opportunity to accelerate diversity in corporate America. And that cannot be done from the professional services side of the table. More specifically, I can present diverse slates of candidates Till the cows come home and the hiring decision is made on the other side of the table. Right. And there are tactics that have to be employed if companies are to hire diverse executives effectively. And those practices are not well-developed or even understood across corporate America. My thought is if I rejoin corporate America with executive recruiting as my function these days, instead of, marketing or strategic planning or what have you, if I can develop a footprint at Walmart on the best way, most effective way to hire and retain executives from underrepresented populations, there'll be a Mm -hmm. footprint for corporate America and I can retire happily, (laughs) having made a difference. Without revealing too much of the secret sauce, the competitive advantage that you're bringing in-house, what's been one of the things or one of kind of the the mindsets that you've had to help shift internally, the lesson you've brought from your years of outside experience? Oh, we have not shifted as yet. I mean, I've only been here about nine months. So we're Mm -hmm. kind of in process and and we really haven't gone the distance. And it's not meant to be a competitive advantage. I would like all of corporate America to have the capability to do this better. So for example, I have created a funnel using real data that pretty much shows for Fortune 500 companies looking to hire, just in this case, African-American executives. Sure. There are about 300 people, period. Now, if it's Fortune 500, that's not even one per company. Right. So if you're going to be hiring more than one, you've got to do something a little differently. Mm-hmm. And the hiring has to accommodate at least more opportunistic hiring. That's mm-hmm. not what companies know how to do. They know how to, I have a specific role spec, must check all these 10 boxes the way I define them. Yeah. 
Right. As opposed to saying this person fits our culture, adds value, and whether their special skill is their strategist or P&L holder or whatever, we can see them adding value to our company. And then having the means to incorporate these people into the culture and the company productively with full respect to those who've already been here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You don't just try to opportunistically hire people at senior levels without regard to their colleagues and everything they've done. So looking at the resumes differently, having different conversations, hiring outside of a specific role and job description, all of these things make a difference. So it's been a particularly crazy couple of years. Uh, right or wrong, it's we've experienced a lot of change and we've had to really kind of reconcile a lot of things in our society. But And there's it's a very contentious environment too. I, think, I don't think anyone would disagree. So as a purpose-driven leader who's seen the world from a lot of different angles, what advice would you give to our leaders, not just in corporate, but like in the world, like in society, like as you look at the world as Sharon, and you can sit down with these senior people, what, what do you want to tell them? Leverage courage more actively, full stop. Everybody's sort of in the lane and doing whatever somebody tells us the best practice is. Let's take pictures off resumes. Yes, that makes it equal. Good, we're there. And they're just so focused on the best practice and so concerned about making the wrong move and how that might be perceived with good reason. Mm. I mean, we love to sue people in this country. Mm. So I get that. But having the courage to make a decision that is not conventional, that is not confined based on the way we've always done it, and to then stand by. Yes, this is a change. Stand by your decision. Yes, this is a change. Yes, it's different from what we've always done, but this is what this company needs right now. Thank you. Go on to the next. The same way we make any business decision. I find that our leaders don't always have the kind of courage they need to learn a different way. I won't even say take a risk because it isn't a risk, but learning a different way. And that was another exciting reason to join Walmart. This leadership is progressive. This leadership, the leadership that's in in place right now is thinking ahead, pushing ahead, trying all kinds of things differently, and then really capitalizing on that which works. Because you can't do these kinds of things unless you have a management team that has a mindset to open, accept, be creative, and leverage courage. So I'm having a ball. What excites you about the future? The younger generation. What about them? I love, I love this younger generation. A generation that has the courage to select their own gender individually and separate from the birth experience. These people are not going to be defined conventionally. Mm. These people will redefine themselves as individuals, will redefine the world and corporate cultures. And it's going to be fascinating because it will be redefined in a more universal context because this generation does not see itself as one or the other or limited to in any way. So I think there's going to be a lot of very favorable impact from this generation. What would your kids say they've learned from you? <laughs> Nothing. They know everything. I mean, I've got two sons. What would they learn from me? How it is. I even try to, God forbid, I try to give my son's career advice. What do I know? I mean, it's mom. It's like <laughs> <laughs> She's not an executive recruiter with XYZ years of experience. They know I love to cook and they love to eat. But I, I think that I have exhibited a strong work ethic. And I think that they have taken up a strong work ethic, but that generation looks at that differently. Mm-hmm. They've watched generations before us get kicked out a, a month before retirement and be broke. And mm-hmm. they're thinking, maybe I won't do that. Mm-hmm. You know? But what my sons have learned from me, hard work makes a difference. Respect and honesty goes a long way. I've tried to instill in my sons to be happy and be you. 
because there's no guarantee that corporate America or any trade or any direction they take in life mm-hmm. is going to be the source of their happiness. So you have mm-hmm. to be the source of your own happiness. So I think those might've been some of the things they've learned from me. If you could talk to that, that little girl preparing a presentation to win the family meeting so she could go to prom, if you could tell that little girl something, what would you tell her? So what I would have encouraged myself to do at that point in time is to, again, be courageous a little sooner. I was courageous enough to make a presentation and have the debate, but I wasn't courageous enough to, for example, challenge the voting system. That would have been real courage to say, can we talk about this voting system? (laughs) And here are some alternatives to the voting system. I mean, that would have been a little bit more courage. And I would also say, as I do tell candidates today, take your nose up from the desk sometimes. I was a very, and still very hard worker. You get in and we're always taught the harder you work, the further ahead you'll get. While that is true to a certain extent, it's only to a certain extent. And other skills are needed to get ahead, not just the hard work. So Sharon, since we've only got a few more minutes, I want to shift gears and ask a couple of fun questions. Uh-oh. <laughs> what, is, what is something about you that surprises people when they find out? People are surprised to learn that I'm shy because that's not what's projected in business. People are surprised at some of the hobbies I used to have. You have to um, say more now. <laughs> well, I was, I was a synchronized swimmer and used to love it. But I mean, that's not a common sort of, oh, <laughs> I used to play in a symphonic wind orchestra and people don't see me as kind of okay. an orchestra <laughs> member. So I think those things are surprising to people. I think that Many people are surprised to learn that I grew up in white environments, Mm. which is why I went to a black college. Wasn't Mm. even sure I was going to fit into the black community. When you're the only one for so long, it's like, what would it be like if I wasn't the only one? Right, right. And that is surprising to black people. What do you mean you weren't sure if you were going to fit in? Mm. And that is surprising to white people. Oh, you grew up in white environments too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that is surprising, but uh, neither here nor there what's your go-to media escape? Are you more of a movie book or TV person? I like movies and I like TVs. I used to be a voracious reader to a point where my father had labeled me quote unquote, extremely reclusive. Mm. I could not take my nose out of a book. So I do love to read. I don't have the luxury of reading as much as I'd like to now, but yeah, movies and TV. I like so, period pieces. What's a movie, TV show, even a book that has characters that you relate to? I like period pieces. I, I love watching like Call the Midwife and, <laughs> and like Downton Abbey. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating to me, the different cultures and how people lived and how it relates to my lifetime. So for example, in Call the Midwife, this is in the mid 60s. Now I was born in a hospital. Mm -hmm. even as a black girl on the south side of Chicago. But evidently in this pocket of London in the mid 60s, there was no formal health care. They had to call a midwife Mm -hmm. and they really did everything. And you're in their homes and Mm -hmm. seeing how they live and what access or not they had to health care, which is just fascinating. And, And then watching the Brits in the English countryside and how their lives were changing in the 20s and how all of that era changed for good uh, with all a lot of socioeconomic change right class structure but to actually see history in the making and to know what comes after is is kind of fascinating to me yeah if you had infinite resources to go do or learn any one thing what would you do i would love to be a renowned chef i would just stop everything move to italy spend some time in france and in a few other cities around the world, developing certifications as a chef, and then come back and open a restaurant. And you need infinite resources. I mean, how many restaurants are profitable (laughs) or even succeed? So that's why I could never have been a career in which I could support a family, but that would be a dream for me. My other dream is I have a whole design for a, people know me as a spa rat, 
big time. And I have a whole design for a new era of spas. And again, you have to have unlimited resources because <laughs> making a spa profitable is, is not an easy thing to do. So here's me moving from gourmet meals to massage tables, right? <laughs> With unlimited resources. Now, of course, you have to start foundations and drive change, but there's ample opportunity for that. And that would be what I do with the other half of my time. Who's someone out there that you would still want to get a coffee with? Abraham Hicks. Say more. (laughs) People are going to think I'm crazy. Abraham Hicks is a spiritual entity, actually a female. I invite you to look her up and, and see, but having a cup of coffee with Abraham Hicks would be phenomenal. What would you talk about? What would you ask her? There are many answers when talking to Abraham Hicks and, and, and the insights I find to be profound. What Abraham will say in a sentence or two sort of answers questions of the ages. And so I think Abraham and I would be talking all day, every day for a week just to kind of get it all out. All right. So Sharon, what is one final piece of advice you would give to the next generation of leaders? It's old and boring, but take time and have fun. I mean it. I really have worked really hard in my career. 80 hours at this company, 110 hours a week at this company, whatever. And my superiors would say, Sharon, you're going to work in Japan for two weeks. Take time and go sightseeing. Take time and do this. But the work ethic back in the day didn't allow for it. You, you know, oh, I've got to get this extra plan out. I've got to get this extra paper out or whatever. And they were right. I mean, I've worked in Japan a lot. I've never seen Mount Fuji. Mm-hmm. How stupid is that? <laughs> You're right there. So book an extra couple of days. Take time. The whole well-being movement that we're all seeing is really serious. And I must tell you, Raman, that I am challenged myself coming from an era that didn't respect it. Mm. but I need to do better at the whole meditation thing and standing up every hour thing, but really taking care of ourselves. And again, I think the younger generation is doing a much better job of that. Well, well, Sharon, I, I've just had so much fun kind of hearing your stories and your perspective and honestly, your kind of inside take on where things are working and where things can get better because they always can. And I appreciate you doing the work and and sharing your stories with us today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It is always fun talking and laughing with you, Roman. So thank you. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at pgalumpod. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. Now here's a preview of next week's episode. The thinking was everything had to be launched internally and had to have internal supply chain, had to be invented here. And it forced me to challenge a lot of what I grew to accept as norms. Things didn't have to be invented within the walls of PNG. Things didn't have to be created and manufactured within a PNG site for it to be successful. And all of those key nodes were challenged. Does this really need to happen here? As well as reaching out to former personnel who had left to pursue other wonderful things. Like, why can't we continue to reach out to them to help us? That experience really helped create the desire for me that I could exist beyond Proctor. That's it for this week. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Andrew Tarbin. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.